Amen. Let's pray now and ask for the Lord to send His Spirit upon us as we give our attention to His Word. Our great and awesome God, Father and Son, we ask now that you would send your Spirit among us. Give to us an understanding of your Word. Lord, will you give to me clarity in in speech and thought? Lord, will will you make it so that your people are are firmly established and built up, encouraged, exhorted, um, reproved this day of of our sin and also of the exceeding righteousness and mercy of God the Father revealed through God the Son. We pray that those in our midst who are not in Christ, those who are outside of His covenant of grace, that today would be a day of of hearing and believing the word of life. That by means of this word, through the power of your Spirit, that you would be pleased to ransom and reconcile sinners to yourself through Christ, the only begotten Son and only Redeemer of men. We ask this for his namesake. Amen. You take your seat and turn once again to to Judges. If you're like me, you've got this bookmark now, and that'll be a a well-used bookmark for some time to come now. We're going to go, last week, uh, by way of introduction, look at some broad strokes, a thematic overview of of Judges. So we skipped around a little bit, started at verse 1 of chapter 1, and then jumped over to chapter 2. Today we're going to camp out and go through the chapter 1. Uh, in its entirety. Uh, some of the key themes that I highlighted last week is we, is we think about the book of Judges as a whole and thinking th- through the question, why are we studying this? And even a bigger question, why is this in the Bible? Uh, so there's some, some difficult things with which we'll have to wrestle through the narrative of Judges. But one of the things we see and some of the things that make us uncomfortable with the book of Judges is the fact that it exposes the sinfulness of sin. There's just no getting around that. Mark Twain said this is the ungetaroundable fact. Sin is sinful, and it, is, it, is, it has a descending effect upon us. Secondly, the theme was the helplessness of sinners to deliver themselves. Over and over and over again, we're going to see this. Thirdly, the polluting effect of false worship. And we're going to see hints of this. The seeds are sown here in chapter 1. The polluting effect of false worship, the futility of outward transformation, the, the, the utter helplessness of the people of God to transform themselves, to fix their own problems. And lastly, but, but most importantly, we see the goodness of God. Throughout the pages of Judges, even through the tragedy of Judges, we see the goodness of God. So in today's sermon, we're still working through some of these introductory matters. So my task today, and we see this in chapter 1, is, is to set before you a couple things. One is a historical context. Um, I, I don't want to belabor all of the, the things that some of you history nerds would like to, to uncover. We're not going to go through all of that. But it is important to sort of set the table, the, the time period and what's going on here in Judges. But there are two uh, particular matters with respect to the historical background that I want to cover. And then I'm going to make some make four observations, spiritual observations that we're going to learn from chapter 1. Now, if you've looked ahead and you've read ahead, it's a lot of names and places. And there are, as the saying goes, all scriptures inspired by God, but not all sections are equally inspiring to us, right? 
You, you might plop down in Romans 8, for example, and, and, and read how all things work together for good, and, uh, but those who are loved and called by God, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and our heart swells, and we're thinking, this is awesome. And you come to Judges 1, and it's names and places, and they defeated so-and-so, and all these isites and heights, and, and you, what do I get out of this? Well, bear with me. I hope to show to you that there are some important lessons, theological lessons, things that, would be a, that will be an encouragement to the souls of God's people, but also a rebuke to us, an exhortation to us, to take heed to the warnings that God gives to us. Sometimes in Scripture, God speaks to us in very plain language. And he says, don't do that. Or do this instead. There are other times where he shows us. If you were an aspiring novelist, and you were to go to some sort of writing workshop, I want to write the next great American novel. I'm going to go to a workshop. One of the things you would most certainly be told in that first weekend event is that you need to, to show, not tell. To make a good story, to make a compelling story, you, you, you allow your characters to show you things rather than just telling you those things. Well, God employs both means as his word unfolds to us through various genres. In the book of Judges, we have actual history but it's recorded to us in a, in, a very, in a high literary form where God many times shows us, by way of example, things that we ought not to do. Sins and patterns of life that we ought to avoid. And he shows us in excruciating detail the tragic consequences if we fail to heed such a warning. Does that make sense? So let's read the text, knowing that we're, we're, we're going to be reading some, uh, you know, if you've got babies on the way, there's maybe some names to recommend here in the chapter. But, you know, these are the kinds of sections of, of Scripture where, whether it's a genealogy or some of these geographical descriptions that our eyes kind of glaze over, we tune out. Listen to God's Word and believe that all of this is profitable for us. Every last word is good for our souls if we will give our attention to it. So let's hear together the word of God. I'll read Judges 1 in its entirety. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go up with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with them. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings and their thumbs, with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire." And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country of the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshiah and Ahiman at Talmiah. 
From there, they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath-Sephir. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah, was also, Judah, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his, all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ebliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nehalal, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Elab, or Akzib, or Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalon, and in Shealbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Silah, and upward. This is the word of God. 
and may the Lord bless it in both the reading and the preaching of it. There, there are two uh, issues that I want to deal with by way of, of background. One is to set the, the timetable here. And, and not so much when judges happened, although we'll discuss that, but I want to communicate to you the scale of the time. I think that's most important, is the scale of the time. There are generally two dates proposed for judges, two date ranges. And I, I don't, I'm not going to impose upon you the, the minutia of, of the two theories. One of them, and it's the whole view I hold, takes an earlier view of the date of the Exodus. So there are several key dates from which you can reference before and after the book of Judges, and then sort of triangulate to come up with a date range. Uh, there's another view that, that, that also takes its cues from, from Exodus, Judges, and Samuel, and 1 Kings, but it, but it takes those dates and those events to be more figurative. Um, so I think we're going to find a, a more accurate, if we start tra- with the traditionally understood date of the Exodus, which is in 1444 or 1446 B.C. So in, in Judges 11... It'll be a while before we get there. But in Judges 11, Jephthah claimed to have lived 300 years after the conquest. When Joshua initially led the people in, Jephthah claims to live 300 years after that. Well, we know that Solomon begins the temple, begins the construction of the temple in the year 966. And according to 1 Kings chapter 6, the Exodus is exactly 480 years prior to the start of of the temple construction. So when you take 1446 minus 966, you actually end up with a 480 years. So the math works. So far, so good. And then if we go back from there, roughly 40 years per generation for Solomon and David, Samuel and Eli, we get very close to Jephthah's time. So kind of working from both directions. You know, if you're teaching a a young, an elementary school kid or junior high kid math, and you teach them, you got to check your work from both sides, right? Both sides of the equation have to match. Well, that's what we end up with going this direction. So this puts Judges approximately 400 B.C. to around 1100 B.C. For you archaeology buffs, that means Second Bronze Age up to about First Iron. And from Judges 1 until the anointing of King Saul in Samuel chapter 1 is just over three centuries. This is the part that I want to, to really press upon us. 1400 to 1100 B.C. is not as important as recognizing there's over 300 years that transpires between Judges chapter 1 and the anointing of Saul as king. Samuel is the last of the judges. And so we've got a 300-year period of time. Now, for perspective, when when we're told in verse 1, after the death of Joshua, Joshua, of course, is the one who led the people over the Jordan into the Promised Land, and it was like, one commentator said it was like a blitzkrieg. In seven years, they conquered all the lands of the Canaanites. Now, they didn't drive them all out yet. That's that's the next phase, but they conquered them. Now we began in Judges chapter 1, the difficult work of, the term is dispossessing the inhabitants. You've defeated them. Now they've got to go. And that was the command that God had given to them. Utterly destroy them and or drive them out tear down their altars, get rid of any semblance of Canaanite culture in order for you to be blessed and to be a blessing in the land. So judges, thinking about this, in 300 years, I mean that, that, that point is, is important for us to wrap our minds around. See, I, I, I added up in my 
you know, you've got the Bible app probably on your phone where you can listen to the audio Bible. If you were to listen to Judges in the Bible app from Judges 1 to the end, it would take you about 110 minutes to listen to the whole thing. Most of you could probably sit down and read it faster than that. And in 110 minutes, an hour and a half roughly, you kind of lose perspective that 300 years take place. Think about that. Think about even in our own American history, what has happened in 300 years. 300 years ago would put us, you know, half a century before even the Declaration of Independence. Much transpires in that length of time. Think about it from our, our Reformed Baptist or particular Baptist history. You go back 300 years. John Gill is pastoring the church formerly pastored by, John, by Benjamin Keach a hundred years before Charles Spurgeon would be there. And we think Charles Spurgeon is ancient history. So see, the perspective of a hundred years transpiring is, is important for us to recognize. As we work through the book of Judges, there's a long period of time. And one of the main issues that we saw last week is this cycle of, of, of obedience and peace that led to idolatry and angering the Lord, leading to the people crying out to God, leading to him raising up a deliverer to rescue them and bring and restoring them to peace. But that circle isn't just a flat circle, it's a downward spiral. And 300 years later, we see the people of Israel, in the end, are every bit as worse off morally as the Canaanites they were to drive out. But we see the seeds of that in chapter 1. We see the seeds of it right here. Charles Schwab, or George Schwab, in his commentary with respect to establishing this, this 300-year window and establishing the dates, he said, you know, that's the easy part. The hard part is making the tenure of the judges fit into the span of 300 years plus. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, if you go through judges, and if you just kind of wrote down and made your own chart, and you work through every judge, this is how long they ruled, and this is how much peace occurred after them, and you added all those up, we have a problem. It's a lot more than 300 years. A lot more. And if we take this as a wooden chronological history, we end up with Samson being a contemporary of David. Well, that doesn't work, does it? So how, what's the solution? We, 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 we cannot say that the Bible isn't true or that, it's, that, that the years are just figurative or something like that. What we need to figure out is what is the organizing principle? Because sometimes in our Western minds, we read history and we just assume linear chronology must be the organizing principle. But in the Hebrew mind, it wasn't necessarily so. They didn't view time as sequentially as we do. But there was an organizing principle that if you were an Israelite, would have been obvious to you. Twelve tribes. There's a geographical organization, not necessarily a chronological organization to judges. A Schwab again, to anyone familiar with tribal Israel, one alternative to a strict chronological ordering is immediately apparent. Some of the judges are grouped geographically. Thus, one should not read judges as if it were merely a chronicle of historical facts. But the real answer to why the book does not follow a purely historical sequence is found in its various interests, which are expressed for us in a highly literary and artistic form. The very fact that exactly 12 judges are on display already reveals an agenda. In fact, as you read through, you'll read a couple of the judges get one or two verses. They were, historically speaking, 
relatively unimportant. But God is communicating to us something that is important about his deliverance of all of his people, all 12 tribes. So that's probably enough history for us to understand the context of Judges. Just remember, it's not strictly chronological. We're going to see some overlap. So for example, uh, while Samson is, is, is fighting his fight with the Philistines in the south, it's very likely that Deborah was fighting in the north at the same time, or overlapping. There's another issue, though, with respect to background that we need to understand, and, and it really is a theological issue. Uh, we need to understand this. We're going to profit from the book, and, and it's, it's the wickedness of the Canaanites. See, there's a problem here when we approach judges with our sort of Western, modern, moral sensibilities. You read through, these, through judges, and, you, and words come to your mind like genocide. I mean, how is it that God would command his people to devote to destruction, meaning to totally eradicate even women and children. I mean, that would be, in fact, there are people who have said this. God should be before the Hague being charged with war crimes. Well, how do we, how do we make sense of this? Leviticus 18 describes for us, and I won't read the whole chapter for the sake of time, but you, I will... You can go home and read that. But Leviticus 18 describes to us in, in, only, in the kind of detail that only Leviticus will give to you in terms of what kinds of sins were going on in the land of Canaan that caused God to say, I'm going to purge them from the land. They have defiled the very land itself. It was the worst kinds of sexual immorality. There were homosexuality, incest, bestiality, ritual prostitution. And add to that things like child sacrifice and rampant idolatry of every kind. Leviticus 18 closes by saying this, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these things the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. See, we don't approach judges with here's you know god's people and and there's a moral neutrality you have the land of the canaanites and it's you know they're the indigenous peoples and god's people are driving them out and oh how unfair and unjust this is that's not what the, that's not the picture the scriptures give to us in deuteronomy now deuteronomy is a series of sermons that moses preaches in preparation for the people to go in and conquer the promised land and in deuteronomy chapter 18 The word of the Lord comes through Moses and says this, When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or charmer or medium or necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. And listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Moses says, you will be innocent of the blood that you shed because these these people are guilty. 
Their depravity has come to such a degree that God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to cause them to be vomited out of the land. And because of this, Yahweh warned his people. And you can turn, just find this in Deuteronomy 9. I'll just summarize it. He's warned the people of God. Don't think in, in your hearts that God has given you this land because you deserved it. Do not think that God has given you this land because you are better than the ones from whom you will dispossess the land. I'm giving it to you because they are utterly and completely wicked. Not because you are righteous. And the guilt of the Canaanites is a point that's just emphasized over and over and over in scriptures. These were not an innocent people. Yahweh was absolutely just in commanding their complete extermination. And, and again, it may strike our modern ears as morally problematic to read about the things that the people of God are commanded to do. And yet this was absolutely just of God. And our conscience, saints, need to be informed by the word of God, not by the air in which we breathe culturally. Amen? In Deuteronomy 7, God commands his people, he says, when the Lord God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations, more numerous than you, mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, listen to this, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But, this, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. That should be plain enough, isn't it? Complete destruction. No one left. None of their altars left. None of it. Well, you heard me read chapter 1 of Judges. Did they utterly destroy the people? Again and again, the refrain comes to us. They didn't do it. They obeyed God incompletely. Ralph Davis in his commentary said, If Canaan's native population is tolerated, it will lead Israel willy-nilly to intermarriage with them, and so you can kiss covenant faith goodbye. Grandkids will know Yahweh as an also-ran fertility god. So our writer's repeated refrain, they did not dispossess, rings with spiritual emergency. It is the preacher's accusation of God's people for covenant failure. Listen to this. They are like a surgeon who removes only part of the cancer because even cancer has a right to grow and find fulfillment, right? Tolerance and suicide are congenial bedfellows. Tolerance and suicide are bedfellows. And I doubt I need to press this point very hard to convince you that this has real and immediate application for us in a culture utterly overcome with all manners of wickedness. Will anyone accuse me of over-spiritualizing the text to see here an abiding warning to God's people not to play fast and loose with sin, not to cozy up to our idolatrous neighbors. I won't name the movie because I don't commend it, but about 20 years ago there was a movie that dramatized the story of a fight against Pacific Gas and Electric in Hinkley, California. 
And come to find people were getting for decades and getting all kinds of mysterious melanomas and tumors and cancers and sicknesses, and many had died. As it turns out, PG&E had knowingly contaminated the local groundwater with a carcinogenic compound known as hexavalent chromium. They were slowly but surely poisoned to death. And one of the things that we find in, in, in the book of Judges, it shows us in graphic detail how cozying up to a morally corrupt culture will pollute our souls far worse than a carcinogenic compound in our drinking water. And it's almost imperceptible at first. I mean, you taste it, it doesn't taste funny. You don't immediately spit it out. But certainly, over time, it kills. Again, 300 years this trans- transpires here. So the Lord knows about this. He knows about our enemies. He knows about us. And we do well to heed the warnings that our, that our loving Father gives to us to take no part in the works of darkness. Not to, not to be friends with it, not to cozy up to it, not to tolerate it in our midst. So this is the background to the book of Judges, and I'm sure there's much more that, that perhaps would be profitable to say about this, but that, I'll, I'll stop there with respect to a background. Um, I would commend to you uh, an infallible background study. Go read Deuteronomy. Go read Joshua. And you will get the, ba- the bigger picture of the background going into the book of Judges. So what do we learn from this? What, do we, what are some lessons that we can learn from, as I said, not the most inspiring text to read? I mean, who wants this text read at their funeral? Who wants this read at their wedding? These are not the kinds of verses that we just naturally want to commit to memory and be inspired by. But this is the Word of God. What are the lessons that we learn? I'm, I'm, I've borrowed a, 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 modified it a little bit, but borrowed a, a concept from Ralph Davis's commentary, calling it Lessons from Geography. He calls it theological geography, I think. The first lesson that we learn here in chapter 1 is what I'm going to call the unremitting power of God. The unremitting power of God. Note how, how, the, how the book begins. After the death of Joshua. Joshua was the mighty hero. J- Joshua was the, the, the conqueror. Joshua was the one who led them across the Jordan River, and in seven years' time, conquered all the lands of the Canaanites. I mean, the, the, the kind of devastation, the kinds of conquering ability would even put somebody like an Alexander the Great would rival that. It was, it, was, it was an amazing display of God's power in delivering his people. But now Joshua's dead. Now what? And you notice there are a number of sort of new chapters that begin in the scriptures with someone who's died. Abraham died, Isaac died, Jacob died, and so on it goes. Look at verse 2. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. God speaks about his own power to save, his own power to deliver. This is, Joshua has died, and yet the power of God hasn't ceased, has it? In fact, in some ways, it's just begun. Verse 4, Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. 
And we're going to see this theme again and again and again throughout the book of Judges, where it is God's mighty hand that delivers them. Look down to verse 22. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with him. We see the power of God on display. In fact, I think the story here, we have this just, it seems out of place, this little story about this young virgin named Oxa. Her father, Caleb, had promised her hand in marriage to anyone who would take Kiriath-Sephir. Othniel is the, the winning suitor here. And Oxa goes to her father and asks for springs of water. Now, that may not make a whole lot of sense to us, but in ancient Israel, especially in the land of the Negev, that's a dry place. If there's no water, there's no life, literally. But I think the story of, of Caleb's daughter, Oxa, illustrates this point. Even a maiden in Israel understood the power of God to give the land. And it, and it seemed, she, she had no doubt. Dad, I'm going to be here a while. Me and my new husband... We need a place to stay, and we need water, because we're going to be here. God is going to give us to this. So just an ordinary maiden in Israel understood the power of God. So, so prominently was it displayed. And, of course, the psalmists often testify to this fact. For example, in Psalm 44, begins with, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. In the days of old, you with your own hand drove out the nations. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. We have the unremitting power of God on display. Joshua's dead. Here was the, the mighty leader. He is gone, and yet the power of God doesn't stop. And of course, the greatest of all, uh, examples of this is in the death of our own Savior, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in preparing his disciples for his death. This, this was un, unimaginable to them. Remember how Peter reacted at one point when Jesus said, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over into the hands of wicked men? And Peter says, oh, not, not on my watch, you're not. May it never be. Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. This, you are thwarting the plan and purposes of God. So in, in John chapter 16, we have recorded for us the Lord in preparation for his own death, preparing his disciples. He says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and declare it to you, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see what Jesus is saying? I'm going to die, and yet the power of God will continue on. In fact, it's necessary for me to die so that the Helper will come. And of course, this is exactly what happened. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. 
to bring forth the word of God and demonstration of the power of God. And so it continues. The apostles are all dead. All the church fathers are gone. All the medieval scholastics, all the reformers, all those who've gone before us are now what the writer of Hebrews calls that great cloud of witnesses. And yet has the power of God ceased? Here we sit in Conroe, Texas, recipients of the blessing and the, and the providence of God to deliver the word with his power to save sinners from the pit of hell. The question that, that just seems to jump at me from, from this thought is, is to ask you, do you know this power of God? The power of God that, that delivers, the power of God that rescues, the power of God that takes a dead man and makes him alive again. The power of God who takes a sinner who's enslaved to his sin, who loves his sin, who doesn't want anything but his sin, and transforms him into a lover of God, one who delights in the law in his inner being. Do you know that power? Have have you known the transforming power of God's grace to transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness and to deliver you into the kingdom of God's own son? So you can. The Bible says very clearly you can. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Will you believe that? Will you, will you place your soul in the trust of Christ, believing that he is a faithful, merciful God who delights to show mercy to sinners? See, that's one of the messages that comes through from judges is we need a perfect deliverer. We can't save ourselves. We need someone to rescue us from the mess that we've made. Paul would declare later, many, many, many years later in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, for the Jew first and also the Greek. And Paul uses that term salvation comprehensively. He doesn't say that the gospel is the power of God to justify you. It is that, but it's far more. It's the power to save you comprehensively, to have you justified before God. But believer, hear this. Even if you've walked with Christ for five years or 10 years or 20 years, the gospel is the power of God to deliver you today from the sin that still ensnares you. It is the power of God that preserves you to the day of Christ's return or or to the day when he calls you home. We have the unremitting power of God on display. There's a second theological uh, observation to make from these geographical lessons. And it's this. It's the benefit of unity among God's people. The benefit of unity. Notice how how the narrative starts. The people ask a question. Lord, who should be first to go? The land has been conquered, but we have not yet dispossessed the people. The Canaanites still are there. Who shall be the first to go? And the Lord says, Judah. Now, that's hold on to that point. That's theologically also very important. But he says, Judah. And Judah turns to his brother Simeon and says, will you go with me? And then I will also go with you. And one of the things we see repeated, particularly in the first half of the book, uh, or the first half of chapter 1, is this, this idea of unity. There will be a continuing area of emphasis throughout the book when God's people cooperate together. You know what we can expect? God's blessing. Fruitfulness. 
the power of God. And in receiving God's blessing, his people will receive his power to accomplish his purposes. But the antithesis is also true. In, when in our rebellion, we express our rebellion against God in brotherly disunity, what may we expect? The absence of God's power. The absence of God's blessing upon us in that way. We, we may expect God's chastisement and displeasure. We should not expect spiritual success. Listen to Davis again. He says, the unity of Israel seems to be one of the author's primary concerns. He makes his point by this fragmentation of Israel theme throughout the book. He depicts Israel's unity as progressively deteriorating. And with it, Israel's fortunes. We need not trace this theme in detail here. We simply note it in order to argue that the notes about tribal unity and cooperation in chapter 1 are not sentimental little ditties for our author. He regards them as significant. As Yahweh's people assist one another, they receive Yahweh's help. One does not torture this text by applying it to the body of Christ at large. The Lord's people thrive on mutual assistance. God has given us one another as channels of his help and strength. Getting a grip on the staggering limitlessness of Christ's love for us is not something the believer does in blissful isolation. It can only be done or attempted together with all the saints. The unity and fellowship of God's people is not a wimpy idea weaker Christians dote on. It is an essential condition for experiencing the strength of our God. We see a correlation over and over again as the story unfolds for us. When God's people cooperate together, when they are unified in heart and mind, God gives them blessing and success and fruit. And as their unity dissolves, we see a moral declension that follows with it. And haven't you observed this? Maybe, maybe even in your own life, as you have drifted away and, and pulled re- and retreated away from God's people and gathering of God's people, you, you see your own, um, your own vulnerability to spiritual attacks. You see your own struggles with sin intensify. We are not designed to live alone. We are not designed to walk alone. Does not the Lord teach his disciples that our worship of God actually is hindered by our disunity? In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has asserted himself as the true and rightful lawgiver. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. That refrain repeats. And he deals with the Sixth Commandment. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you've had anger in your heart against your brother, you're guilty of what? Murder. You've murdered in your heart. And Jesus applies this, and he says... If you're offering your gift on the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Why? Because our worship of God is hindered by our disunity. Peter makes this, even takes it to even a, a more macular level, says this is true in the home too. Husbands, this is on you. He says in 1 Peter 3, Live with your wives in an understanding manner. The husband's, one of his roles is to promote a peace and a unity and a harmony in his marriage. And Peter says, your prayers will be hindered if you don't do this. 
commenting on this passage, John Calvin says, For God cannot be rightly called upon unless our minds be calm and peaceable. Among strifes and contentions, there is no place for prayer. Peter indeed addresses the husband and the wife when he bids them to be at peace with one another so that they might with one mind pray to God. But we may hence gather a general doctrine that no one ought to come to God except he is united to his brethren. Then, as this reason ought to restrain all domestic quarrels and strifes in order that each one of the family may pray to God, so in common life it ought to be, as it were, a bridle to check all contentions. For we are more than insane if we knowingly and willfully close up the way to God's presence by prayer, since this is the only asylum of our salvation. See, this is not just an anecdote that we draw out of Judges. This is the consistent witness of Scripture. Our disunity, our acrimony towards one another is a hindrance to our worship of God. It is a hindrance to our moral and spiritual success. So we see here in Judges chapter 1, amidst all the, the names and places and, and all those kinds of, of maybe we might be tempted to think of as excessive detail, we find here, again, the author telling us, or showing us rather than telling us, what happens when God's people permit strife to cultivate. Thirdly, a third observation, a, a theological um, observation that we make from these geographical lessons is the primacy of Judah. From the third verse onward, or from the second verse onward, there's a primacy, there's a priority placed on Judah. Of all the tribes of Israel, there's 12 of them, Judah is pictured to us as front and center. Well, that of course has a root in God's covenant dealings with his people. When Jacob was about to die and he pronounced a blessing on each of his sons, The tribe of Judah, according to prophecy, was going to be the tribe from which the scepter would not depart. That would be the the tribe from whom the Messiah would come. Note that in verses 3 through 21, roughly the first half, we see a, a highlighted success of Judah. Over and over again, as you read through this, Judah has success. Conquering their enemies, defeating those who've gone before them, and then the narrative turns, beginning in verse 22. See, this is foreshadowing a much later division of Israel, north and south. Two tribes in the south, Judah and Simeon. And the ten tribes in the north that one day, after the death of Solomon, would would go into historical oblivion. Well, that's all sort of foreshadowed here, but this is not an accident of geography. Our preacher and judges is making an important spiritual point. And I can't be certain about this. Commentators are not certain, but it's, I, I'm convinced Samuel is the one who wrote the book of Judges. And can you think of a reason that Samuel would want to promote Judah and especially in contrast to one particular tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Can you think any reason why Samuel might write in such a way to highlight the success and the moral superiority of Judah over Benjamin? Of course, he's making a case for King David over Saul. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, think about the way the book of Judges ends. 
the book of Judges ends with this bizarre sort of, can we call it a courtship event, mass courtship event? When, when the, the, what had happened is all the tribes of Israel had covenanted, had sworn to God, we're not going to give our daughters to the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was essentially on the way to extinction. That's how the book of Judges ends. Except for this, well, there's some basically virgin prisoners of war that we'll make available and let the tribe of Benjamin go and ambush them and select for themselves wives. That's how the book ends. And then with the final statement, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Benjamin is, is, is held in disregard, and in contrast, Judah is held in high regard. Well, theologically, that's important because it's a reminder, even in the book of Judges, even when sometimes all hope seems lost, God is preserving in a particular way, all of his tribes, but in a particular way, Judah from whom the promised seed would come. There's hope. Even under the dark blanket of judges, there's a light of hope. Fourthly, a fourth spiritual lesson we learn from chapter 1. The first chapter of Judges shows us very vividly that military success does not necessarily equate with spiritual success. Outward success is not equal to moral improvement, moral success. Look at this repeated refrain that begins in verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Ask yourself, when you read that verse, is, is there a, a lack here in the power of God? No. They were able to put them to forced labor. They had the upper hand. Again, I said, as I said last week, this was a moral problem, not a military problem. Their weakness was one of will, not physical strength. They had the upper hand. They, they grew strong, and yet they did not obey God. We see this again in verse 30. The Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Verse 29, the, the, the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. And, and you see that all the way through. Asher did not drive them out. Nephtali did not drive them out. The Amorites lived among the people of Dan. They persisted in dwelling up until this very day. And again, if it's Samuel writing, he's talking about up until the very moment he's writing this these people are still here. 300 plus years later, they're still there. Still worshiping their fertility gods. Still doing their ritual prostitution. Still offering their, their children to sacrifice. And the Israelites are going right along with it. The people of Israel had successfully defeated the inhabitants of the promised land under Joshua. Uh, but now... We learn that they did not obey God by utterly destroying, both physically and spiritually, their enemy. They did not devote them to destruction. They did not destroy their idol worship. They did not tear down the altars of Baal. They did not tear down their ashram. In Exodus chapter 34, 
Beginning in verse 11, the Lord through Moses says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. And we see in chapter 2, second half of verse 10, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Parents, there is, there is no sadder, more severe indictment of parents than to say their children did not know. That mom and dad didn't teach them. It's one thing for the kids to reject it. It's another to say they didn't know. They had never been told about Yahweh's faithfulness. They'd never been told about Yahweh's power. They'd never been told about Yahweh's abiding mercy. They'd never been told that this was our job. All these, the kids that you go to school with, they were supposed to not be here. This was supposed to be our land, holy unto the Lord. We are supposed to be a holy people, and the kids didn't know that. But we also may need to be reminded that God never told his people that their success would be instantaneous. As he prepared them to go into the land, he never said, as soon as you walk in, everything instantly is going to be better. They're all going to instantly fall away. You won't have to have a sustained, persevering battle with your enemy. In fact, God told them the opposite. God had previously told his people that their success would not be instant, but would be gradual. Listen to Exodus 23. I will not drive them out before you in one year. And listen to the reason. God is wise and good. Listen to this. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And you shall drive them out before you, and you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. You see what's happening? Yahweh is testing his people. God is creating perseverance in them. God is creating long-suffering in them. God is creating in them a fortitude to battle against their physical and spiritual adversaries. Does this sound at all familiar to you? This mirrors. This mirrors our, our whole lifetime of sanctification, doesn't it? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a parable almost here in the conquest of of Joshua. It happens fast. 
They take the land. The Lord converts a man. He causes him to be born again. He's got new affections, a new life, and a new hope. But sin still remains, doesn't it? And God tells us, you're not going to be purified. You're not going to be glorified instantly, are you? See, one of the things that, that, that falsely ensnares God's people, falsely discourages God's people, is this idea that as soon as you come to faith in Christ, all your problems go away. If you used to be a drunk, you just, I mean, instantly you will never have any desire for that ever again. If you used to be a drug addict, if you used to be a, a, a sexual uh, sinner, if you used to struggle with your anger, you were an abuser, that all of a sudden you're in Christ, all those things just evaporate. That's not true, is it? Now, God may, in his providence, remove desires from, pers- from one person or another, but that's not ordinary. And there is a picture of God's people learning how to persevere, learning how not to give up, learning how not to just give themselves over to the culture that surrounds them, but to persevere as a testimony of the genuineness of their faith. See, ultimately what happens is the people of God did not believe the promises of God. And they capitulated. They compromised. They began this process of syncretism whereby they would take practices from their pagan neighbors and blend that into their worship. They didn't abandon the worship of Yahweh. They sought to do it according to the forms and, and the ideas and the patterns of their pagan neighbors. But perhaps some of you need to be reminded of this in order to be encouraged in your, to persevere in your own sanctification. Our, our battle against sin is not usually instantly won. For those of you who've walked with Christ very long, you know there's, there's sort of a, a sad irony. It's almost as if like you were, the closer you get to the sun, the hotter it gets. And the more the Lord, by his Spirit, conforms us to the image of Christ, the more we grow in our holiness, the more we are aware of how sinful we are. The more we become aware of the depravity that remains. So be encouraged. The power of God is at work, that unremitting power of God. Even when things look bleak, even when things look The odds look insurmountable. The power of God is is unceasing. It is unremitting. And also, that power of God is most often revealed as his people work together in unity. As his people strive together, not against one another, but striving with one another. Fighting side by side, as it were. That was one of the themes we saw in, in the book of Philippians, as Paul uses that military image over and over again. Stand side by side. Fight as one unit. Fight as one man. That's that's one of the messages we see here in the book of Judges. We see also the uh, even in the darkness there is hope because there's a primacy given to Judah. It is as if the author wants to shine this 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 small light in the midst of the darkness and say, "Remember, God made a promise, and even here, He's fulfilling it. Even here." He's lifting up Judah above the others, reminding us that one day a king, a Messiah, a perfect, sinless deliverer will come. And a warning to us that outward success does not 
equal spiritual faithfulness. And isn't this true at, at, a, at the level of a church? We could have a big building and a huge budget and cars everywhere and, and programs full and be an empty shell. Or in the language of our confession, we could degenerate to the point of being no church at all but a synagogue of Satan. See, outward success doesn't equal spiritual faithfulness. But this is true individually too, isn't it? We, we all know how to walk a walk. We all, we all know how to put the, the church smile on, right? And say, I'm fine. Everything's all good. And it's not. Are we willing to heed the warning and recognize this pattern that outward success is not the same thing as spiritual faithfulness? And to see that if, if we will not and do not deal with the unfaithfulness, it will have devastating consequences. The book of Judges makes that plain to us. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our God and our Father, we thank you for your, your kindness towards us. We thank you that even in the darkness of, of, of a book like Judges, when we see the account of your people's sin and rebellion, there we we read of their partial obedience to you. We read of their willingness to tolerate just some sin in their midst. Holy Spirit, will you use this as a way of correcting our thinking, of convincing us of of the devastating effects of the sin that remains, will you cultivate in us a growing hatred of sin? Will you cultivate in us a a growing conviction that God's power is more than enough to deliver us and preserve us and keep us until the day of Christ? Or will you help us in our weakness to cling tightly all the more tightly to your precious covenant promises. Father, will you grow us together in unity and a love for one another, a common love for our Savior, a common love for the things that he has taught us and taught us to hold fast. We we pray that you will be glorified and honored as your people grow together in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.